right. It's good to good to be with you guys this morning. Um, wanted to just start by asking you a question. <clears throat> Have you ever experienced a time in your life or a scenario where you obeyed God, where you did the right thing, but as a result you suffered for it? Never experienced. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm sorry. Ever experienced something like that? There's quite a few examples of this in Scripture. Uh, a couple that come to mind would be, one is Joseph. So Joseph, when, when Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he ran, he fled from her, fled from temptation, but then she falsely accused him and he was thrown into prison as a result. Or there's King David, uh, or David before he was king, when King Saul was trying to kill David and one night Saul and his, uh, and his men unknowingly walked into the cave where David and his men were staying, and David had the opportunity to kill Saul and put a stop to Saul trying to hunt him down, but instead David did the right thing. He spared Saul's life, but despite David doing the right thing, what happened? Saul just kept on trying to pursue and to kill David, and so once again David uh, suffered for doing the right thing. And the best example of this in Scripture is Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He perfectly obeyed the Father. He perfectly loved other people more than himself, and yet Jesus was rejected and condemned and crucified by his own people. It's it's interesting that we have this tendency to expect that when we do the right thing and obey God, that blessings should result. You know, if we scratch God's back, he'll scratch ours kind of thing, right? So it can really throw us off and shake us when things don't happen that way, can't it? And yet over and over in Scripture, we see examples of suffering resulting from obedience. And God even explicitly teaches us time and time again in Scripture that this is going to happen. And the passage that we'll be looking at in Exodus this morning is another great illustration of this. But it also serves as an encouragement to us when obedience to God leads to suffering. The main point of the sermon this morning is that obedience will result in suffering some of the time, but God is willing and able to keep His promises to us all of the time. Okay, Obedience will result in suffering some of the time, but God is willing and able to keep His promises to us all of the time. Now we're going to be in Exodus chapter 5 and 6 and a little bit of the first part of chapter 7, but before we jump into the text, I want to catch us up on where we're at in the story and just remind you where we're picking up. So God had told Moses to go and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let Israel go. And after much resistance uh, from Moses, Moses finally obeyed. And so Moses and Aaron, they went to the elders of uh, Israel and they told them that God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, had appeared to them and seen their afflictions and that uh, he had heard their cries and he was going to bring them out of Egypt and Uh, So the people of the elders of Israel, they believed Moses and they were all encouraged. And then in chapter 4, verse 31, we read this. It says, the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped. So, so far, so good. Moses is confident. God's people are confident. They're like, praise God. He's heard our cries. We're finally going to get let go. We're ready to step forward confident in faith. And so Moses is ready to go before Pharaoh. 
And that's where we pick up in chapter 5. Let me read uh, here the first nine verses of chapter 5. It says this, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest He fall upon us with pestilence or with sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So, clearly things did not go as Moses and Aaron expected, right? That's not how they planned that things were going to turn out here in the first nine verses of chapter 5. Instead of an easy victory, Pharaoh became irritated with Moses and the people of Israel. And instead of letting them go, the opposite happened. Pharaoh actually increases the burdens on the people of Israel. And verses 10 to 19 go on to describe how the Egyptian taskmasters ordered the Israelites to, now they had to gather their own straw while still producing the same amount of bricks as before. And when they couldn't keep up with the demand from Pharaoh, they were beaten with whips by their taskmasters. And so the people end up going to Pharaoh and pleading with him for mercy, saying, we, we can't do this. You're, you're laying on us a burden that we're not able to bear. There's no way we can keep up. But Pharaoh refused to have mercy on them, and he sent them out and ordered them to continue to bear the same heavy burden. And so we'll pick back up in verse 19. It says that the foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord and said, oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. As I was reading through this story uh, this week leading up to the sermon and preparing, I just kept getting this sense in my head like, like it was like Moses and Israel were, su- were stunned. It was like they were an overconfident UFC fighter walking into the ring and getting their teeth kicked in in the first round and like not expecting it at all and trying to gather themselves. And you just get this sense that, that they were not expecting this resistance. And remember, Moses had taken a huge step of faith. Moses was afraid in chapter 3 that the people of Israel wouldn't follow him and he didn't see why Pharaoh would listen to him and God had told Moses, I will be with you. 
God called Moses to step out in faith, and so Moses obeyed him. And what was the result? Well, not only did Pharaoh refuse to comply, but he made Israel's burdens worse. The people of Israel were angry at Moses, and they were ready to throw in the towel. And Moses found himself right back where he was the first time that he fled Egypt. He was unpopular with the people of Israel, and he was an enemy of Pharaoh. He was disillusioned and confused. He questioned God. He said, why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh, things have only gotten worse. God, ever since I did what you called me to do, what you told me to do, things have just been getting worse. This is a critical juncture. Because you see, here's what often happens in these moments in our lives. When someone obeys God, but that step of faith doesn't lead to the outcome that they wanted, what's the temptation? The temptation is to abandon ship. God's way didn't work, and so I need to go back to doing things my way. I tried trusting God, but things didn't go like like I expected, so I'm going to get back in the captain's seat in my life. That's what Israel wanted to do, and that's what Moses was tempted to do. So many people have made shipwreck of their faith because they have abandoned their trust in God in moments just like this. But if you were only willing to trust and obey God as long as you feel like you're in control of things, then it's not really God that you're trusting. Your trust is still in yourself. God wants His people to learn to trust Him because we cannot deliver ourselves. You may be under the illusion that as long as you're in control, you'll be okay, but let me just ask you a question. How's that been working out for you in your life? How has that gone? The reality is that obedience results in suffering some of the time. As Christians, Jesus did not promise us pain-free or trouble-free lives. He promised to forgive us of our sins. He promised to sanctify us completely and to give us eternal life. And that's what he'll do. But the road there will be marked with hardship and sufferings. And this is where many people get confused about God. They think that a relationship with God is like a formula. You know, you you get out what you put in. If we scratch God's back, he'll scratch ours. If I obey God and do this thing for God, then God will do this other thing for me that I want him to do. But that's called works righteousness. It's just a way of trying to earn God's favor. That's what every other religion in the world is built on, earning God's favor. But the Bible teaches that our relationship with God is founded upon grace. If we actually got what we deserved from God, if we truly got what we deserved from God, we would all perish. Because the Bible says that the wages for sin is death. What are wages? Wages are what you earn. Your wages are the paycheck that you get for doing your job. You go and you earn your wages. The wages we get from God, the wages that we deserve is death. But God is so rich in mercy that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come as a man and to come and to die on the cross for our sin. He took the wages of our sin, which is death, in our place. And then three days later, Jesus rose from the grave defeating death. God gave Jesus what we deserved, and then He gives us what we don't deserve. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says that He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. He took our sin upon Himself in His body on the tree and in exchange He gives us His perfect spotless righteousness and it's a free gift that's received by faith alone. God gives it to us as a gift of grace. So friends, God does not give us good things because we've earned it. God gives us good things because God is good. There's no other basis. So the motivation for our obedience is not to earn things from God because we can't. The the motivation for our obedience is an expression of continued trust in God. That's what obedience is. It's continued trust in God. And we're called to continue to trust in God even when obedience results in suffering. Even when things don't turn out like we expected them to. But that's the trouble, isn't it? We have a, we, it's easy to trust in God. It's easy to walk by faith when things are going great, when we feel like we're in control. But all of a sudden, when we actually have to trust God because we're really not in control, all of a sudden, what do we want to do? We want to go our own way. We want to wrest control back away from God. There are all sorts of instances in our lives as followers of Christ where obedience is going to result in difficulties. You might share the gospel with someone, and that could lead to rejection or persecution. Maybe you refuse to engage in unethical practices at work, and that might lead to you getting passed up for the promotion. Or you might pray and fast for healing from an illness for yourself and for a loved one, but the sickness might only get worse. The temptation in those moments is to react like Israel and Moses. Why have you done evil to this people, God? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I obeyed you, things have just gotten worse. It's in these moments that we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and fix them back on God. And that is what God helps Moses do in Exodus chapter 6. Because, you see, God is so gracious that He meets us in the midst of our discouragement to reassure us. In Exodus chapter 6, God assured Moses that obedience will result in suffering some of the time, but God is willing and able to keep His promise all of the time. God reminded Moses of of three truths about himself in particular in chapter 6. He reminded Moses of his providence, of his promise, and of his power. I just want to walk through those and show you that in the text. So let's look at how he reminds Moses of his providence. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. God responds to Moses' cry of despair. He says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. So Moses and Israel are panicking. I love this. But then we switch to God's perspective here in verse 1. And it's very clear that God's not worried. God's like, now you're going to see what I'm about to do. Now you're about to witness my power. Now you're about to experience my deliverance. It's pretty evident that God is not concerned about this turn of events. God is still very much in control. In fact, it's God who has caused this turn of events to come about in the first place. And even Moses recognizes this. Look back again at chapter 5 in verse 22 and 23. Look closely here. Moses says in verse 22, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? 
the next verse, he says, ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Ever since I've come, Pharaoh has done evil to this people. So Moses attributes the same act, the the increasing of Israel's burdens, he attributes that same act to Pharaoh and to God. Do you see that? He attributes that to Pharaoh and to God. So it's Pharaoh committing the evils, but it is the Lord's hand who is behind it all. Such that Moses can say to God, why have you done evil to this people? This is not to suggest that God is evil or that, he perpetu- or that He perpetrates evil. Scripture teaches that God can be sovereign over evil and yet not be morally responsible for evil. One really amazing picture and illustration of this is the story of Joseph, where Joseph's brothers sell Joseph into slavery because they're jealous of him. And Joseph spends years and years uh, in Potiphar's household, and then he gets falsely accused and thrown into prison. And then from there, God raises Joseph up. He ends up becoming second in command in all of Egypt, and he gets put in charge of Pharaoh's storehouse. And then when a famine comes on the land, he's able to provide for Egypt, and he's able to provide food for his family. And when him and his brothers are reunited, he's able to provide for his brothers and to forgive them. And at the end of that all, what he says to his brothers in Genesis 50, chapter 20, is this. He says to them, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. So, selling Joseph into slavery was evil. Joseph's brothers did that action, and it was evil, and they were morally responsible. But in that same evil act, God meant, or he planned it for good. God brought about those events. God is the one who was ultimately behind Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery because God had planned it from before the foundation of the earth. Because God knew that he was going to raise Joseph up as second in command in all of Egypt and ultimately use this act of evil by his brothers to bring about salvation for Jacob and for Israel. So God can have righteous purposes for the unrighteous actions of people and do so without violating the moral culpability of man. Now this brings up an important question, one that Moses asks. He asks, why, God, have you done evil to this people? For what good did God cause this to happen? Why did God allow things to get worse? Why did he allow the burdens on Israel to be increased? Let's look ahead to chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. God says this to Moses. He says, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Do you remember Pharaoh's response to Moses in the beginning of chapter 5 when Moses said, the Lord says, let my people go? You remember what Pharaoh said to him? Who is the Lord? 
that I should obey Him. I don't know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Well, Pharaoh may not know Yahweh yet, but the message is clear here. He's about to know. He's about to know who Yahweh is. Everyone is about to know who He is, including Israel. God says to Israel in chapter 6, verse 7, He says, I am going to take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. This is what God is doing in the first 14 chapters of Exodus. God Himself hardened Pharaoh's heart, causing Israel's burdens to be increased so that He could demonstrate His saving power to His people and show Egypt in all the nations, that there is only one God, Yahweh, the Lord. The Exodus is an exhibition of the excellency of God's mercy and power. That's what the Exodus is all about. God is putting His mercy and His power on display so that His people can know Him and so that all the nations of the earth will know that He is the one true God. That's what He's doing by His sovereign hand in orchestrating all of these events. That's what we're going to see as we walk through the plagues over the next couple of weeks. And the way that God displays His mercy and His power is through the hardening of Pharaoh. Let me show you this again in Psalm 105. Carrie mentioned this uh, earlier this morning. Psalm 105 recounts the entire uh, Exodus narrative. And it praises God for what He did in delivering His people in Exodus. Listen to verses 23 to 25. It says, Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. And the Lord made His people very fruitful. And He made them stronger than their foes. And He turned their hearts to hate His people, to, to deal craftily with His servants. So what the psalmist is saying here is that the people of Israel began to multiply in Egypt, just like we read in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. But then it says, the, the king of Egypt, began, his heart was turned to hate the people of Israel. Who turned his heart? God turned his heart. God turned the heart of Pharaoh and the heart of the people of Egypt to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Why? So that he could make known to Israel his saving power with mighty acts of deliverance. Through this suffering, God revealed Himself to His people in a way that they had not previously known Him, and in a way that they could not have possibly known Him. So how does this come to bear on us as Christians when obedience leads to suffering? Well, guys, I can tell you from my personal experience, and I'm sure many of you guys can attest to this as well, that I have drawn nearer to God and have come to know Him in a more intimate way in times of hardship and suffering in my life than at any other time. And it is God who providentially brought about those hardships in my life. They are not random accidents where God made lemonade out of lemons. God purposed those hardships for my good. Because there's nothing better that God could do for me than to reveal Himself to me and to demonstrate His saving power and His faithfulness. You realize that, right? There's nothing better God could give us. There's nothing greater God could give us than the gift of Himself. If God were to give you anything less than the gift of Himself, He would not be loving us to the fullest extent imaginable because there's nothing greater than God. 
There's nothing more satisfying than God. And so the best thing that God could possibly do is reveal Himself to us. And He often does that in the clearest ways as He takes us through the fire, as He brings us through the suffering. Sometimes that's the only way He can reveal Himself to us. So when obedience results in suffering, we need to remember that God is in control of that suffering and that He's brought it about for our ultimate good. And I'll also mention, by the way, that if you're having trouble uh, swallowing the idea that God is sovereign over suffering and sovereign over evil, just consider the alternatives. Consider a world where God relinquishes His sovereignty over evil and just stands back and decides to let it run wild. And he's just as surprised at the events taking place as we are. Friends, that's a terrifying world to live in. A world where God is, God is not absolutely in control, where God is not sovereignly purposing and planning every single incident that happens in the world for the good of his people and the glory of his name. But Scripture is clear. God is sovereign. Not even a sparrow drops dead from the sky, Jesus says, apart from our Father in heaven. Every single bird that falls from the sky, that's ordained providentially by God. And that's really good people. Good news for God's people. It's really good news for us. Secondly, when obedience results in suffering, God is also there to remind us of His promise. He's there to remind us of His promise. Look at chapter 6, verses 2 to 5. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. If you've been following closely in Exodus, you'll notice that this is almost a repeat of God's promise in chapter 3. God repeats and reemphasizes the same things that He told to Moses in chapter 3. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, and I have remembered my covenant. God continues to emphasize those things. So why is God repeating Himself? Well, think about what has happened between then and now. Moses had obeyed. He had taken a step of faith, and then he ran into what felt like, for Moses, a brick wall of failure, right? God, I did what you told me to do, and things just got worse. Have you ever been there? Anybody ever been there? The point is that none of that changes God's promises. His promise still stands. His promise is still just as sure as it was in chapter 3 before Moses ran into this brick wall of failure. Because God wasn't surprised by it. This, this obstacle is not too big for God to overcome. God hasn't forgotten to do what He said He's going to do. God still hears the groans, He still sees the sufferings, and He still remembers His covenant, and He will keep it because God cannot lie. God did indeed keep His covenant to Israel. And as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks as we keep walking through Exodus, God will lead them out of Egypt. And He will eventually bring them into the promised land of Canaan, just like He said He would. And for us, when obedience leads to suffering, God's covenant towards us still stands as well. What has God promised us? 
God has promised to remove our sin, to sanctify us completely so that we are blameless when we stand before God on Judgment Day. He's promised to raise us from the dead so that we will dwell with Him forever and ever in the new heavens, in the new earth. And we might be prone to forget God's promises in the midst of hardship, but God does not forget His promises. The fires of affliction do not nullify the faithfulness of God. Those promises stand no matter what you're walking through in your life, no matter what you face. Obedience will sometimes be painful for followers of Jesus. Trusting and obeying God in the midst of a world that is hostile towards Him is not always easy and it's always costly. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, He said, If anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's why we walk by faith in the promises of God. We're not in the promised land yet. We live in a broken world right now, but we will be. And until we get there, we walk by faith and we, we fix our eyes on promises like, like Romans 8, 28-30. Let me just read this passage to you. It says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So how do we know that God will work all things together for good for us? Well, verse 29 and 30 give the basis. Paul says, we know that for, for those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. And those whom He justified, He glorified. The good that God is working for those that He has called is that He will certainly conform us into the image of His Son. If you've been called by God, if you've been set apart, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus, it's because God called you from before the foundation of the earth. He gave you the gift of faith. He opened your eyes. You were born again. The Spirit of God was put in you. He took out your heart of stone. He gave you a heart of flesh. And now He's sanctifying you and conforming you into the image of His Son. And He will finish it. You will stand before Him blameless. Amen? That is good news. So we'll stand before His presence glorified, free from any remnant of sin or guilt with new resurrected bodies. And God is working everything in your life as a Christian. Even the hardships you experience towards that glorious end. All of it is for the purpose of bringing you to that moment in that day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. When pain and death will be no more, neither will there be crying or shame. And we'll have new, resurrected, glorified bodies. Everything in your life is working towards that end, brothers and sisters. That's why we can have joy in the midst of suffering. That's why the Bible can tell us to rejoice when you face trials and hardships of various kinds. Have you ever wondered how James can say that in James 1, verse 2? 
It's because we know that God is causing all of those things to bring us to that glorious day, to work together, to bring us to that point. So, brothers and sisters, we do not need to succumb to discouragement when obedience leads to suffering. Oh God, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me ever since I obeyed you? Things are just getting worse. Woe is me. No, you don't need to do that. Paul says in Galatians 6.9, Don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Don't grow weary. God is a promise-keeping God. He remembers His promises. I would strongly encourage you to memorize God's promises and to meditate on them. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, as Colossians 3 says. It's our only defense against an onslaught of doubt which is sure to flood our minds and our hearts when our obedience leads to suffering. We will be assailed by doubt. The evil one will fire his fiery darts at us, but we hold up the shield of faith. We wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to combat those lies. God's promises are what keep our faith afloat in the midst of stormy trials. A great place to start when it comes to memorizing and hiding God's Word in your heart is Romans 8. I can't tell you how many times I have turned to the precious promises contained in this chapter to bring me through some of the most difficult things in my life. God's Word is our offensive weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. Don't leave your sword stuffed in your nightstand drawer where you take it out to look at it every once in a while. Hide it in your heart. When obedience results in suffering, God is there to remind us of His providence, of His promise, and lastly, God is there to remind us of His power. Look with me at verses 6 to 9. I love this. Here's what God says to his discouraged servant Moses and to his despondent people Israel who've basically already given up already. And this is what he says. He says, say therefore, Moses, he says, this is what I want you to say to the people of Israel. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So Israel felt like they were in a hopeless situation. They felt powerless. And you know what? They were. And so were we. But sometimes we just need to be reminded that, you know what? The situation you're in, it's not too hard for God. Notice the repeated I statements. Did you you notice that? I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land I swore to Abraham. God promised to pick his people up and carry them to deliverance. I mean, they were so discouraged. It says that they were, 
that their spirit was broken because of their harsh slavery. Israel had nothing left in the tank. And so it's almost, you get this picture that God just comes and scoops them up off the ground while they're lying there exhausted and they've got nothing left. And he just scoops them up and he puts them on his back and he says, I'm going to do it all for you. I'm going to carry you through every single bit of this. That's what God has promised to do for his people. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing too difficult for God. He's omnipotent. He has no limit to his power. There's nothing outside of the realm of his control. So yes, obedience may lead to suffering. Walking by faith will frequently lead you into situations where your weakness is exposed, where you are in over your head. But church, nothing is too difficult for God. Jeremiah 32, 27 says this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? That's a rhetorical question. There's nothing that's too hard for God. There are many things that are too hard for us, but not for Him. God will often put us in positions of weakness to teach us to trust in His power. I love the example that Paul gives in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. He says this, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. That's a rough day, right? That's a rough day. And then he says this, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But then listen, But but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Even if I'm put in a situation where it feels like I've received the sentence of death, We serve a God who raises the dead. Paul obeyed God by taking the gospel to the region of Asia, and it resulted in suffering. He was burdened beyond his strength, but it was in his weakness that he could experience God's gracious power. So don't abandon your trust in God when obedience leads to suffering. I want to close with a story. I don't know how many many of you are basketball fans. NBA fans? Anybody NBA fans? I'm sort of an NBA fan. I'm from Houston, so I'm a Rockets fan. And I was at the Houston Rockets game against the San Antonio Spurs in 2004 when Tracy McGrady scored 13 points in the final 33 seconds in one of the greatest comebacks in NBA history. Anybody remember that game? Who remembers? Yeah, one of the greatest comebacks and individual performances in the history of basketball. I was a big Rockets fan. I was at the game, but I left early. Yeah. I left the game with a little bit over two minutes to go. The Rockets were down by double digits, and I left to beat the traffic. And I missed out on witnessing this epic comeback in person because apparently I didn't have enough faith in Tracy McGrady. Now, was it reasonable for me to expect that to happen? Was it reasonable to expect that McGrady was going to score 13 points in 33 seconds and do something that had never been done in the history of basketball? No. It's hard to blame me for not expecting that that was going to happen. Millions of people have left games early to beat traffic, and they've missed absolutely nothing, right? Happens all the time. It's reasonable for me to have doubted that the Rockets could win that game. But it's not reasonable for us to doubt God when things are not going like we would expect them to. When people abandon their faith in God as soon as they meet a little bit of resistance, they miss out 
on the greatest blessing of all, which is experiencing God's comforting presence in the trials and His mighty power in the inevitable deliverance that He will bring. The Rockets game did not have a certain outcome. I had no way of knowing what was going to happen. I had no way of knowing that the Rockets were going to come back and win that game. But church, we already know that Jesus is going to win this game. That's the thing. We're not like in this position where, is Jesus going to come back? Is he going to score 13 points in 33 seconds? We don't know. We're going to have to sit back and wait. No, we already know the answer. Jesus is going to crush the serpent under his feet. He's already done it at the cross. He's already defeated death by rising from the dead. He's seated on the throne in heaven, and he is coming back again to make all things new. We already know victory's coming. Why would we despair when it looks like we're down 10 points with 33 seconds left to go in the game? Jesus is coming back, and Jesus wins every single time. So we don't need to abandon our faith in God and miss out on God's comforting presence in times of trial. We don't need to miss out on the mighty, amazing deliverance that we will experience. It's inevitable. It's coming. So don't abandon your faith in God. Don't leave the game early. Our confidence that Christ will deliver us from all of our afflictions is rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What I want you to remember is that Jesus has died on the cross to remove your sins and to remove the condemnation that once hung over you and that Jesus has risen from the dead to remove the sting of death and you, by faith in Him, have eternal life. And those who put their faith and trust in God are not in danger of losing no matter how dire your life circumstances may be. Obedience will result in suffering some of the time, but God is willing and able to keep His promises all of the time. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, or if you're not sure where you stand in your relationship with God this morning, I don't want you to leave this place without making sure that you know where you stand today. All right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can have assurance this morning that you know the outcome, that you know that when you stand before God on judgment day, that you'll be counted as innocent, that you'll be counted as blameless, and that you'll be raised from the dead to everlasting life. And that assurance comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to invite you to place your faith in Him today, this morning. You can do that right in your seat. In a moment, I'm going to go ahead and ask the worship team to come up. And we're going to get ready to close out our time of worship uh, by closing with a song. But during this time, if you would like to talk to somebody about how you can place your faith in Jesus, or if you'd like to pray with somebody, we're going to have a couple of prayer counselors in the back through those double doors. We We want to invite you to come and talk to us. We'd love to pray with you and just talk to you about what it looks like to begin to follow Jesus. And maybe uh, you're a believer, maybe you're a Christian, you're here this morning, and you're just walking through a difficult season of discouragement. Maybe you're walking through a hardship and a trial right now, and you need somebody to pray with you. You need somebody who can be there to, to walk with you and hold your hand through this time and to remind you of God's promises. We would love to pray with you and to link arms with you in that. And so, again... As we, whenever the band starts to play, you can head back and go through those double doors and we'd love to pray with you together, all right? Let me close this uh, in prayer and then the worship team will begin to play. God, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I thank you so much uh, that you are so faithful. 
God, we praise you for your power. There's nothing that's too difficult for you. We praise you for being a promise-keeping God. Lord, we praise you as the, uh, the sovereign, providential God over all creation, Lord. And you ordain everything for the good of your people and the glory of your name. God, I thank you that we have a sure and a certain future. We have a fixed hope that's rooted in the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. Help us to keep our eyes on that hope, on your promises, God, so that when we follow you, when we obey you, Jesus, and that obedience leads to hardship and it leads to suffering, we'll be able to continue to rejoice even through the midst of those things and continue to hold fast to our hope in you. And I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that doesn't have that hope, that doesn't have that joy, that doesn't have that confidence that we're talking about, all that seems foreign to them. I pray that today you would be gracious and that you would open their eyes, give them the gift of faith so that they would believe and be saved and come to have this same uh, just incredible uh, hope and confidence and joy that we enjoy as believers. God, we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.